Well, we return this morning to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17. just want to take a moment this morning to uh, thank Joe and Eric for filling in last week and doing such a wonderful job in opening the scripture to us in discipleship and in, in, uh, in worship. Uh, we are blessed to have men who can handle the word and open it to us. And uh, I particularly am thankful. Uh, it's one of the few times I was able to sit with my wife during worship, and that's, that's always a special treat. We come to Leviticus chapter 17 this morning in our study of this great book. Let me uh, begin with verse 1, and we will read through verse 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, and who, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting, is to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When any person eats an animal which dies, or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Father, we know that you have much to teach us today. And we know that this understanding of blood is important for us to know. And so we would ask, Father, that you would teach us. Help us to understand your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a strange chapter. A lot about 
animal blood and how the Old Testament people of God were to think about it and how they were to treat it. We may wonder why the Lord would devote a chapter in a very important book about the public worship of God and the private morality of his people to the subject of blood. Well, we already know that from the very beginning, when Cain slew his brother Abel, Moses recorded that when Cain did this atrocious thing, what happened? Abel's righteous blood cried out from the ground. So here we are, right after the fall. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And essentially, the first situation we're faced with has to do with blood. Now, implicit in the account of the fall, we've already seen something having to do with blood. When God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, there was blood involved, although it's not focused on there. But going all the way back to the very beginning, we have this emphasis on blood. You remember a little bit further on the strictures that were given to Noah pertaining to blood. Blood throughout the Old Testament is very significant. And Leviticus 17 is explaining to us why. And before we're done, we're going to see how this plays into the New Testament as well. This passage opens up two reasons why the Israelite treatment of animal blood was so important to the Lord. And those two applications themselves will take on an even greater significance when we come to the New Testament. Now I want to outline the passage for you. It's shorter than other passages that we've been studying recently, significantly shorter. Some of the chapters we've been looking at have almost 60 verses in them. There are only 16 here, but it will help us to outline the passage before we work our way through it. In verses 1 and 2, we get the typical introduction. We've seen this um, many times before. The Lord comes to Moses. He has something to say to the people. God speaks to the people through Moses. So God comes and commands Moses to communicate whatever he's going to say to the people. We remember why this is, because earlier God had spoken directly to the people from the mountain, and the people were terrified, and they said, let's not let that happen again. Moses, from now on, you go up to the mountain, the Lord can talk to you, then you pass on to us what he said. We really don't want to experience that anymore. And so here in verses 1 and 2, we have that. The Lord speaking to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them. Now as we look at this introduction, we're seeing a transition from chapter 16 to chapter 17. And chapter 17 in the book of Leviticus is functioning as a chapter of transition because we're moving from what we have seen in the first 16 chapters now which is about public worship it's about what happens in regard to the tabernacle how is the priesthood to function what are all the sacrifices to be it's all about public worship the people of God coming to the tabernacle but after chapter 17 and down through the rest of the book, things are going to change. We're going to move from a discussion of public worship to personal morality. How does the individual Israelite live before God during the normal course of his or her life? 
And chapter 17 is the hinge upon which that turns. So, this is what we're seeing here in these first two verses of introduction. It it is a, a turning point for us. The second section of Leviticus 17, you'll find in verses 3 through 7, and in that section we're told that the people of God in the wilderness are not to slaughter domestic animals which have been approved by God to be used in sacrifices unless they bring them to the tabernacle for the priests to slaughter. It doesn't matter whether they're going to use them for sacrifices or not. Every animal that can be sacrificed is to be taken to the tabernacle to be slaughtered. That's the second section of our chapter. The third you see in verses 8 and 9, and those two verses tell us that there are to be no sacrifices of any kind offered outside of the tabernacle. And we'll discuss the reason for all this as we examine the passage together. In verses 10 through 12, we come to the fourth section of the chapter, and in this section, Moses commands that no blood is to be eaten by an Israelite or even someone who is sojourning in the land. The blood of animals is not to be a part of the Israelite diet. And in this very important section, there are two reasons given by Moses, ultimately from God, of course, as to why the children of Israel are to abstain from eating or drinking the blood of animals. And finally, in verses 13 through 16, we come to the fifth section of the chapter, and this deals with rules for hunting game. And again, we'll try and discover the reason for these instructions as we go. Now, just to prepare you for what's to come, we're going to take these sections slightly out of order. We're going to look at sections 1 through 3 in order as they come to us in the chapter, but then we're going to skip over section 4 and return to it after we deal with section 5. And we're doing that for a specific reason. Section 4 is the high point of the chapter. And that is going to allow us to move seamlessly into the New Testament to see how all of this comes together. So when we get there, I don't want you to think that I'm forgetting something. There is a method to the madness. Well, let's walk through the passage together and see if we can make it clear and understand its application for us as New Covenant Christians. As I just said, in verses 1 through 2, at 1 and 2, we have the introduction to the chapter. It starts off like so much that we have already seen in Leviticus, so we won't spend a great deal of time here. What we need to understand, as I've already indicated, is that this is a transition between chapters 1 through 16 and chapters 18 through 27. We're moving from public worship to personal life. And the topic of the chapter is introduced as a part of Israel's code of conduct, just like the other chapters that have been introduced up to this point. God comes to Moses, sometimes Moses and Aaron, and he says, tell the people this. This is what they are to do. This is what they are not to do. The second section of the chapter in verses 3 through 7, as we've said, we're seeing a directive from God through Moses that no sacrificial animal, that is, those domestic animals like an ox, a lamb, a goat, none of those animals which have been approved for sacrifice is to be killed either outside the camp or within the camp, no place but at the tabernacle. And what we're being told is that the tabernacle in the doorway to the tent of meeting is to become the exclusive butcher shop for Israel. And the priests, the only authorized butchers. No meat is to be slaughtered, at least not the meat of those approved sacrificial animals. No meat is to be slaughtered in the wilderness, 
by the children of Israel that come in the category of oxen or lamb or goat, either inside or outside of the camp, unless they are taken to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the priest slaughters them, whether that meat is going to be used for a sacrifice or whether it's going to be used for another purpose. It is very interesting. Whether they are going to use it for a sacrifice or not, this meat is to be slaughtered by the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Why is that? The text makes it fairly obvious. The Israelites had a problem. Look down at verse 7. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. If you have the problem of people sacrificing these animals to demons, to false gods, to idols in the wilderness, then the only way that you can assure that that is not going on is to control the slaughter of these animals by the priests of Israel, who themselves are devoted who themselves are supposed to be devoted only to the worship of Yahweh. Only to the worship of the one true and living God. Otherwise, if you simply say, if you kill those animals, you can't kill them except to offer sacrifices to the Lord or use them for meat or something like that, what can happen is that the sacrificing can go on to these goat demons in the wilderness. And when the priest or one of the elders of Israel says, Hey, I understand you slaughtered an oxen last night. Did you slaughter that for your family? Or did you slaughter that to worship the Lord? They could say, Oh, we slaughtered that to worship the Lord. When in reality, they were sacrificing it to a demon. And go right on with their worship of false gods. But if you require that at any time those approved animals are slaughtered for whatever reason, it has to be done there at the doorway of the tent of meeting and has to be done by the priests, then they cannot be used for the worship of other deities. You're putting a control on that. God is graciously telling his people, do it this way so that you won't fall into sin and be judged. You see, everywhere in the law, there is grace. The reason for the law is gracious. It is to either show us our inability to keep the law and thereby drive us to Christ, or it is to keep us from those things which will damage our lives and damage our souls. The law is gracious. The whole point of this commandment is to enforce obedience to the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. And in this way, God's trying to make it as easy as possible to obey the first commandment. Now, we are ingenious creatures. And so as much as God does for us to make it easier, His people will continue to pursue actively the act of idolatry. But what we are seeing here is the grace of God. It's a very practical, common sense command. It's intended to prevent the use of animals authorized in the worship of Yahweh to be used in the worship of false gods, which apparently has been going on in the wilderness ever since they left Egypt. We see it at the, mount of, at, at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. And it would continue. And God says we need to put a stop to this. And there's a reason he speaks about the goat demons. We know that there was a goat-worshipping cult in Egypt. How twisted and depraved and fallen do you have to be to look at a goat and say, I want to worship that. 
But this is what sin does. It twists our minds and it twists our souls. Later in the Old Testament, we'll find out that some of the people of God fell into this worship of false God all the way along until God finally comes and brings them, as we mentioned earlier today, into captivity. And it's that captivity which finally, it seems, puts a stop to the idolatry within Israel. So that by the time you get to the New Testament, by the time you get to the coming of Christ, the thought of idolatry horrifies any Jew. And they lay down their lives so as not to allow idolatry to take place in Israel. They lay down their lives before the Roman legions. The Romans come in and they set up their own idols and the Jews die rather than to allow that to happen. This is the change that took place, but it took years and years and years and judgment upon judgment. Now, let me pull back and say that this very command assumes a couple of things. First of all, it assumes that the children of Israel, while they are in the wilderness, are not killing very much meat of this variety. You can imagine if they were consuming meat the way we consume meat, the way I consume meat, these priests would have been very busy. Day by day, slaughtering all the meat that all the women in Israel wanted to cook, that's all they would have been doing. This command assumes, however, a nomadic condition. They're traveling through the desert. They're traveling through the wilderness. Israel is not killing many oxen or goats or sheep as they, as they do that. When we get to the book of Deuteronomy, something very interesting happens. That condition changes. And this makes perfect sense. You come into the land... If you're up in the territory of Dan in the north of Israel and you want to have oxen tonight, according to this, you've got a long trip to the doorway of the tent of meeting before you can slaughter the meat. So Deuteronomy changes the law. And it does so because the condition of Israel has changed. Once they come into the land, they're no longer roaming around the wilderness. And so, God's law in its ceremonial aspects, even in the first five books of the Bible, was accommodated to fit the situation of Israel. There have, over the course of history, been people who wanted to take the laws of Israel recorded in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and kind of plop them down into modern society and, and, and try to rebuild a modern society around those laws. God's a good lawgiver. And when the circumstances of Israel change, he changes the laws to suit those circumstances, at least in the ceremonial aspect of it. God's moral law, of course, doesn't change because the moral law of God is a reflection of his own character, and his character doesn't change. But when circumstances change, things like this sometimes do. But the main thing I want you to see about verses 3 through 7 is that this divine butcher shop is set up so that Israel will do what? Will worship the one true God. Well, that's Israel. What's the application for us? The application is the same. As believers, we are to worship only the one true God. We are to have no other gods before us. We are to be faithful to the worship 
of the God of Scripture. And this provision, this law, was designed to help Israel follow that command, and it was designed to show us how seriously God takes that command. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Here again we see a command that no sacrifices are to be offered outside of the doorway of the tent of meeting at the tabernacle. Then you shall say to them, any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people. All of the sacrifices that are offered have to be offered there and only there. The doorway of the tent of meeting. Again, the law is that sacrifices are only to be offered at God's house. The point of this law is to protect the unity of worship in Israel. There is only one God to be worshipped, and we're finding a little bit more added to that now. Here in verses 8 and 9. Not only is there only one God to be worshipped, but that God has appointed one way to be worshipped. So the people of God are to bring all of their sacrifices to the same place so that the people of God are worshipping in the same way. There is a unity here. They are only to offer sacrifices appointed by God. They are the only sacrifices that will be accepted by God as legitimate worship. And those who violate his law are to be cut off from the people. Which is Old Testament speak for capital punishment. The penalty is death. Now, we've seen this phrase over and over again in verse 8. It speaks of the aliens who sojourn among them. Some of your translations may say sojourners. Some of them may say resident aliens. They're all saying the same thing. A sojourner, a resident alien, one who sojourns among you, is a reference to those who are not descended from Abraham, but nevertheless find themselves there in and among the covenant people of God as they are moving through the wilderness and as they will settle themselves in Canaan. And isn't it interesting that everybody who is within the sphere of the camp of Israel is required to obey this law. Whether you're a blood descendant of Abraham or not, if you are among the covenant people, you are obligated to obey this law. In other words, there is no pluralism in Israel. If sacrifices are going to be offered, they will be sacrifices only to the one true God. There is no accommodation to say, if you're an Egyptian, that's great. You go over there and sacrifice to Ra, while we're, we stay over here and sacrifice to Yahweh. Every sacrifice that is offered in Israel is to be offered to Yahweh. So there is, in that sense, a restriction upon the aliens sojourning among the people. Now we're going to see in Leviticus 19 where there are certain privileges granted to aliens, but in regard to worship, there is no such accommodation. There is no pluralism. All within the camp are going to worship only the God of Israel. And again, the application to us, we need to be careful here, don't we? The application to us is not that we go out and enforce Christianity on our particular nation state. 
Things have changed since the time of Moses. The application to us is that as Christians, we are to be faithful to the one true God in our gatherings, in our corporate worship, in our congregation of the saints. It is not that we are to impose our particular theological views upon those of everyone in our nation, but that within the confines of the church, which is the institutional form of the kingdom of God in the new covenant, within the church we are to be faithful to the one true God and Him only. There is to be no syncretism in the church. We're not going to join our worship with the worship of other gods. We're not going to have joint worship services with the local temple. Or even with those who call themselves a church but have rejected the authority of the Scripture. Neither the United States nor Israel, modern-day Israel, nor any other national political entity is to be considered a theocracy. The church most certainly is. The church is to be governed by God Himself through His Word as it is led by Spirit-appointed elders. That's the application for us today. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to briefly skip over the fourth section and return to it once we've examined the fifth. We come down to verses 13 through 16. We find that this addresses certain regulations about hunting. Pick up with verse 14. As for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When a person, when any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening when he will be unclean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear the guilt. I should have started in verse 13, excuse me. When any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Now, you've got to imagine that there were those in ancient Israel who would have heard Moses reading the first part of the chapter, and they would have been asking, if you can't kill an animal anywhere but the doorway to the tent of meeting, does this mean that there is no hunting in Israel? And so clarification comes so that Israel's game wardens would know the rules. And here's what they'd be telling you. Fine, hunt turkey, coyote, hyena, hunt whatever it is you want outside of oxen, lamb, and goats. But if you do kill those animals, those beasts which are permitted to be hunted, even their blood you are not to eat or drink. You're to pour that blood out on the ground and bury it. Even the blood of game, wild game, that can be hunted and killed anywhere, even that blood cannot be eaten by an Israelite. Now, of course, the question hanging over everything that we have seen thus far is, what's the deal with blood? And the answer is found in that fourth section of the passage, which we previously passed over, found in verses 10 through 12. And any man from the house of Israel 
or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that people who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. You know, uh, Ireland does not have a reputation for being a culinary destination. That's been changing recently, actually, and you can get some pretty good food there now. But they've still got some problems, which our family discovered when we went there a few years ago. And what we found was that it is impossible in Ireland to get a hamburger that is rare or medium rare. The government has established regulations concerning this. The rules for steak is a bit different, but if you wanted a burger, you better like it cooked to death. Well, Israel was in an even worse condition, but for different reasons. Sadly for the Israelites, all of their steaks had to be ordered well done. Look at verse 11, because the reasons are provided there. There are two reasons. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. The argument is simple. Blood is life. Withdraw the blood from an animal, and the life of the animal is gone. So blood is life, and God has appointed that animal blood, that life, to serve as a substitute for the people of God who deserve the punishment of death for their sins. And out of respect for God's having substituted the life of those animals for our own lives, the Israelites are not to partake of blood because blood is life. It's a way of the Lord saying, see that animal? The Lord took the life of that animal as a substitute for you so that you could continue to have life. Now don't take the blood, don't take the life of that animal lightly. Don't eat that blood, don't drink that blood. God has appointed that animal's life as a substitute for you to make atonement. So there's the first rationale. Blood is life, and therefore, by God's appointing the life of the animals in place of the people of God as substitutes, they might be in fellowship with Him and go on living. By that reason, respect for that life and respect for that substitutionary sacrifice dictated that no blood whatsoever of an animal was to be eaten by anyone in Israel. But that's not the only reason. If you look again at verse 11, it goes on to say this, For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In other words, God is stressing there that the blood is the ransom price. The animal's blood atones for man's sin. It is thus holy. It is to be treated as holy and therefore not consumed. And so with these two arguments, Moses, speaking for the Lord to Israel, explains why Israel is perpetually not to eat or drink blood. Now this theme is picked up in the New Testament. And it's picked up in several ways. Very quickly, I want to point you there. The first place we see this picked up is in the book of Acts and chapter 15. You'll remember that there was a debate in the very early church about Gentiles who were coming to Christ. 
and what was necessary for Gentiles to come to Christ. And there were some who were coming and they were saying that unless these Gentiles get circumcised, they cannot be saved. Paul and Peter, on the other hand, were saying, no, that's not the gospel. And so there was a conflict in the early church, and they determined that the apostles and the elders of the various churches would gather together in Jerusalem, and they'd have a talk. They'd hash out this issue. And if you look at Acts chapter 15, verses 20 and verse 29, you see that one of the things that James said as he brings all of this to a conclusion is that the Gentile converts should what? Verse 22, verse 20. Let's start get a whole sentence here. Verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things commit contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Down to verse 28 and 29, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. The principle, you see, doesn't just stretch back to Leviticus. It stretches all the way back to Genesis, chapter 4. Genesis chapter 9, it's the Lord pointing to that substitutionary sacrifice through the animals, and we're seeing an application of that here in Acts chapter 15. Now, we don't have time enough to get into everything that's going on here in Acts chapter 15 and you know how it fits in with other passages down the road. Suffice it to say that we're dealing here with a first generation of Gentile converts coming out of paganism, and we're trying to figure out at this point in Acts chapter 15 how formerly pagan Gentiles and Jews who have grown up from birth under the law, how they're all going to get along together in the church. So this isn't an eternal council from James to Gentiles, but it's something that is going on here as the early church is trying to work these things out. Of course, there is that great application for us in the epistle to the Hebrews. In chapter 9, for instance, chapter 9, verse 22, says, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. In the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews tells us, blood was given to atone, to ransom for sin, for almost everything and without the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats there was no forgiveness but in chapter 10 verse 29 we find that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin only the blood of Jesus can forgive sin what have we been saying all through our study of Leviticus what we find in the Old Testament is an arrow. It's pointing us in a given direction. And that direction is toward Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament. Christ is the fulfillment of everything we're seeing in Leviticus. Christ is the fulfillment of Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17 points to Jesus. It's why we sing, there is power in the blood. And there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's why we sing, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. 
The blood of Leviticus 17 points forward to is fulfilled by the shedding of the blood of Christ. And this is something that Jesus Himself spoke about. And this in my study this past week, preparing for this message, just really struck me and opened me to something that I didn't really see, I don't think, before. And this is what, John, what Jesus says in John chapter 6. You remember in John chapter 6, he's talking to people in the wilderness. He has fed thousands. And then he left, he departed from them, but they followed him into the wilderness. And he's got an audience of thousands, and he begins to speak to them. He begins to teach, he begins to preach to them. And that's how this situation begins there in John chapter 6. He's speaking to people in the wilderness. Now, I want you to understand this. Put yourself in the place of a first century Jew standing there, listening to Jesus. You are a Leviticus 17-keeping Hebrew. And you're in the wilderness, and there's this prophet from Nazareth, and he's preaching to you, and suddenly he says to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... You have no part of me. These are people, down to the last man, the last woman, who knew Leviticus 17. Don't eat blood. Have nothing to do with blood. And then Jesus stands before them and says, Listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. If you get that, then you understand why by the end of the chapter, out of all those thousands, there's 12 left. Everybody heard that and left. Why? Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And his hearers would have had their little internal voices screaming at them. But Leviticus 17. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't speaking literally. He was saying, unless you appropriate my life by faith, you will die. Because my life is the substitute for you. Life is in the blood. When I shed my blood, I'm giving my life for you. He's using that language of eating and drinking his flesh and his blood in John 6 as a metaphor, as a picture, as a description of faith. He says, he lays it right out there. You can't miss it. In, in John 6.35, in preparation for all that is to come next in this discussion of blood, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. He's not speaking of some kind of transubstantiation or anything else. He's using this as a metaphor, and he lays it out very clearly Eating him as the bread means coming to him. Drinking of him means believing in him. That's the whole point. We receive Christ by faith, by eating and drinking. And of course, this wouldn't have been lost on any early Christians when they came to the Lord's table and they heard the presiding elder say, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Think of how a Leviticus 17-keeping Hebrew would have heard that shocking word. But this is the word of Christ. There is life, and the life is in His blood. He shed His blood. He gave His life as a substitute so that through His blood we can have life. 
And it is the only way. It is the only source of life. We spoke this morning in discipleship about Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul describes those who are outside of Christ as being dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. And if you are in that condition this morning, there is one way by which you can receive life, and that is through Jesus Christ. God gives life through His Son, because His Son shed His blood as a substitute for us. So that the wrath which we deserve would be placed on Him at the cross and not on us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want life, now and forever, it comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. And that blood will cover you. That is the means by which we drink the blood of Christ unto salvation. Do so this morning. And the promises of God for you will be true. Because He is faithful. Father, thank You this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful word You have given to us. We are indeed so grateful the blood father has been poured out the blood has been spilled but it is not our blood it is the blood of christ the perfect blood which accomplishes perfect atonement as a substitute for sinners we rejoice in this father call your people to yourself we ask in the name of christ in the name of one who invited us to come and eat and drink of his flesh and his blood. In his name we pray. Amen.